you think about the words of that song. Amen? Amen. For those of you who have come to Formation Hour the last three weeks, you will have heard me start off each week with the overarching goal of First Church. Being disciples, making disciples. Being disciples, making disciples. Even if you didn't come to Formation Hour, you have heard me say that before. I believe that scripturally, that is what we are called to do. As Christians, we are called to be disciples of Christ. And we are called to make disciples, other disciples of Christ. We do this because it's what Jesus did. One of the first things He did in His ministry in Mark chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 was call people to be His disciples. It says, One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, He saw Simon and His brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they were fishing for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow Me, and I will show you how to fish for people. He did the same thing a little further up the shore with two more brothers, James and John. He called people, follow me, be my disciples. That is how his ministry began. Now how did his ministry end? It was with a call to make disciples. You heard me last week quote Matthew 28, 19 and 20. This is the Great Commission. In it Jesus says, go and Make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey the commands that I have given you. His last charge to the people who had walked with Him for three plus years, for people who He had trained to be His disciples, was to go and do the same thing for others. Go and teach them to to follow Christ. Point them towards, summon them towards a life of following hard after Christ. This was the last things He told the eleven remaining disciples before He ascended into heaven. Make disciples. Now being and making disciples is so much more than just being able to recite verses about Jesus. It's so much more than knowing the miracles that He did. Being a disciple means striving to live as Jesus did. To do the things He did. To talk and walk and act like Jesus. I love how simply the author of 1 John puts it. 1 John 2.6 says, Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. It's as simple as that. C.S. Lewis believes something very similar about the purpose of church. He once wrote this, The church exists for no other purpose than to draw people to Christ and to make them like Christ. To draw people to Christ and make them like Christ. He says, if the church is not doing this, then all the cathedrals, all the clergy, all the missions, all the sermons, even the Bible are a waste of time. That's what C.S. Lewis wrote. That's bold. It's straightforward. But essentially, it is being disciples making disciples. But what does that mean? What does that look like tangibly for us? What does that require of us? So often that's a question we ask when when told we're going to do something. Well, what will it take? What does it require of me? Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. 
We'll begin in verse 25, and we're going to find out what is required of us to be a disciple of Christ. We've been in the Gospel of Luke for a long time. Somebody say amen. Amen. We started Luke in Advent of last year, so if you do the math, that's about nine months. And that is about seven months longer than Pastor Ron Miller told me ever to do a series. So next week we're going to finish our series in Luke. Not saying we'll never come back to it, but we're going to finish our time there. So this week I thought it wise to hear from the Master himself. From Jesus as to what it will require of us to be his disciples. If our overarching goal is to be disciples, make disciples of Jesus Christ, what does he say it's going to take? Before we jump into our text, I'd like to ask God's blessing on our time. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would... Uh, enlighten us. Open our eyes to what you have us to see today. Anoint our time in your word. We recognize that without your movement, without your voice, without your push, these are just words on pages. But with it, they are truth. And they point us towards you. So we ask you, bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen. What does it require to be a disciple of Christ. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life, Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost, Jesus says. For who would begin a construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there is enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money. And then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Verse 31, Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss the terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. Jesus says, so you cannot become my disciple without giving everything up. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. I think Jesus would say the same thing to us today. Anyone with ears to hear should listen to this text and understand. And if you listen to it, you're probably thinking to yourself, wow. Right? That, that's what it takes to be a disciple? Wow. Jesus is pretty much saying you're either all in or you're not. He's asking, are you willing to give up everything? Now, maybe Christ will never call you to give up everything, but he's asking, are you willing? He's not pulling any punches here, is he? 
Let's see if with the Spirit's guidance we can get a good grasp on this text. First thing we want to do is put it into its context. When Jesus says this, He is en route. He's on His way to Jerusalem. Now beginning in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, up through 19, verse 28, Jesus is very steadily marching towards the city where He will be crucified. He's purposely walking towards the fulfillment of His earthly mission. He's on the way to finishing the task at hand. As He was walking towards Jerusalem, our text tells us this in verse 25. A large crowd was following So he turned around and he said to them. He had to turn around. Luke, I think, puts this in here to remind us that Jesus is on his way. And once he turns around, he addresses this large crowd that's following him. By a show of hands, how many of you have ever witnessed a large crowd forming? How many of you have ever seen a bunch of people in one place? How many of you have not? Okay, good. We're talking the same language here. Good. Sometimes it takes a while for these crowds to form. Sometimes not. Last year I was driving by Lewis and Clark High School later in the afternoon, right after the school had ended, and I was stuck at that stoplight right there, right next to the school. And I noticed this mass of students, without paying attention to the light or the cars that are coming and going, they they just rushed across the street to this corner. I'm guessing that most of them had no idea what they were going over there to see, but they were following the crowd. Just like that, a mob had formed. A large crowd. Now my light turned green. I checked to make sure there was no kids that I was going to run over, and I, and I kept driving, and I looked in the rearview mirror and was saddened to see that this crowd had formed because a couple of hot-headed young boys were going fist to fist, toe-to-toe. Did everybody that went over to watch that know that's what's going on? I doubt it. But they were following the crowd. I'm guessing that Jesus realized that there was a lot of people following him that didn't really know what was going on. I'm sure there were people there who genuinely cared and were concerned. They wanted to figure out who this Jesus guy really is. But there were others who probably looked around and saw this crowd marching along. and I'm going to go see what's, what's going on. So taking advantage of the situation, our text tells us Jesus stopped, He turned around, and He taught them. His intention here was to weed out. To sift through the true followers from the flakes. So He did this by teaching, what's the cost of discipleship? Verse 26 and 27 in our text. Jesus taught them, if you really want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers, your sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. If you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Wow. Discipleship. Daryl Bach, in his 2,000-page commentary on the Gospel of Luke, says this, Discipleship is fundamentally a call to allegiance. Discipleship is fundamentally a call to allegiance. What we see here in Jesus' first statements to the crowds is that discipleship is just that. He's challenging them to do a pulse check on their allegiance. Who, in their heart of hearts, are they most committed to? 
Verse 26 has been a stumbling block to many people. They read that, that word, you must hate your father, mother, children, brothers, sisters. And, and they think to themselves, doesn't Jesus like family? Doesn't He have family values? Isn't that what Christians are, are known for? Family first, right? Well, then you throw in some of the other things Jesus says, and it really makes you scratch your head. Luke chapter 8, you can just listen to this, verse 19 through 21. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to him, but they couldn't get to him because of the crowd. Someone told Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside and they want to see you. But Jesus replied, my mother and brothers are all of those who hear God's word and obey it. Essentially, he was saying, they're not my family. These others are my family. And then in today's text, you must hate your mother, brother, father, sisters. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 29, Jesus says, Everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. In today's text, Jesus says you must hate all those things. Confusing? A little bit unsettling? Yeah, definitely. Discipleship is fundamentally a call to allegiance. There are several things at play in our text today in what Jesus said. First, I want to assure you that family was paramount in the world of Luke. There was a high cultural value in family. In fact, in that culture, when they said family first, they meant it. Bloodlines were, were huge for them. You had an allegiance to your family. Jesus, in turning to the large crowds, was simply saying to them, if you follow me, I must come first. If you follow me, I must come first. Oh, and then we get that word hate. That's a four-letter word. The word hate in this text is a Semitic hyperbole, which means it is an obvious exaggeration to make a point. If you've got a pencil and pen, you need to look up a couple other examples in this. Genesis chapter 29, verse 30 and following, and Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24 are other examples of this sort of hyperbole. One commentator writes that the Eastern language is always as vivid as the human mind can make it. When Jesus tells us to hate our nearest and dearest, he does not mean literally. He means that no love can compare with the love we must bear towards Jesus. Now this isn't the first time those following Jesus had heard this type of teaching. You look just in Luke, and he's doing this in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, verse 57. Luke chapter 12, verse 13 and following. These passages all speak with similar force. Jesus saying, I must be first. These passages are all asking the question, where is your allegiance? That's what Jesus is saying. Just because you are following me doesn't necessarily mean you're my disciple. You probably just look at the other side of your your Bible and see in Luke chapter 13, verse 26 and 27, that Jesus says this, Then you will say, But we ate with you, and we drank with you, and you taught in our streets. And he will reply, I tell you, I don't know you or where you came from. Get away from me, all you who do evil. 
Just because you followed me, just because we ate together, drank together, just because you heard me teach, does not make you my disciple, Jesus was saying. I want you to hear this. Jesus loved family. He loved family. What was one of the last things he did while hanging on the cross? He made sure his mom was taken care of. John chapter 19. Dear woman, this is your son. John, this is now your mother. Jesus loved his family. But Jesus knew where his priorities were. And he knew where the priorities of those who would claim to be his disciples must be. Him first. Now had he said, hate your father, mother, brother, sisters, wife, and children, and just left it at that, maybe we could have made the argument that, okay, he really wasn't a big fan of family. But he continued, he said, yes, you must hate even your own life. He throws the individuals into that mix. Not just them, hate yourself. He says you must take up your own cross. You must be willing to endure tremendous pain, suffering, mockery, persecution. Because when Jesus spoke of taking up a cross, that's what they would have thought of. His listeners, they wouldn't have thought of that nice little gold thing on the necklace. Pain, suffering, mockery. Jesus says you must be willing to do all that because you must love me even more than you love you. This is a priority statement, not a family values statement. And Jesus could have stopped there. I'm sure he could have said, ye who have ears to hear, listen. And I bet much of the crowd would have left. But I think Jesus wanted to drive home his point. So he continued. We're in verse 27. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there is enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. This is a little mini parable that Jesus tells, and it's another blatant, pointed address at people's priorities. And this story could be looked at from two different angles. Let's look at first at one side. This story could be looked at from the perspective of one's individual property. How many of you frequent the Nevada-Hamilton corridor? Okay. Right around, right around the Hilliard area where if you're going north, Hamilton curves up a little bit and turns into Nevada, right? Okay. How many of you have looked left about a block and a half in and you've seen this framed out garage? Anybody? Scott's seen it. Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes there's a car parked in it, sometimes not. It's just the frame of the garage. And you don't have to look very hard to see that the wood is very, very weathered. You know why it's weathered? Because they framed it out 14 years ago. I lived in the neighborhood then, and I watched as the, as the family with excitement was framing this garage, and there was such great hope. And they haven't seen a lick of progress since. No siding. No roof. No shingles. I don't know what happened. Okay? I wonder if the family had run out of money. I was going to drive over there and take a picture of it and show you on our... Oh, man, that was a shameless plug. <laughs> wow. I'm sorry. 
one vantage point we could read this parable from is, is somebody's personal property. If Jesus told this mini parable about one's individual property, it was more than likely he would have been talking about a watchtower that was built to overlook people's vineyards. Overlooking one's vineyards meant you're overlooking one's stuff, your possessions, your land. And land was huge for the people of Israel. Perhaps land ownership was even bigger than family. After all, the Jews, they held tightly to the land that their families had inherited back generations before when Joshua had entered the promised land and the land had been divvied up. So they held tightly to it and they'd often build a tower to overlook their property. This is one perspective that we could take on this little mini parable. Now the other side of it, 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 it's a little bit more cryptic. But I kind of like the way it, it plays out. Jesus talking about building projects that were not yet finished. See, a bit before Jesus' birth, Herod the Great had begun a massive rebuilding pro- project of the Jewish temple. His sons and their heirs were continuing on with this project. But what for? And not too long after Jesus' time, A.D. 70, the whole temple would be torn down. It would be made into ruins. And I'm guessing that the, the armies that came in and knocked it down were sitting there laughing at the people who had spent so much time and money to build this. So through this little mini parable, Jesus very well could be saying, look, don't put all your hope and trust in the temple, this unfinished project. Or even in the Jewish law or the faith that you've learned growing up. To be a true disciple of mine, you must be willing to put me even before your allegiance to the temple. To be a disciple of Jesus's, he's saying you must be willing to put him before your allegiance to the temple. This would have been a hard pill to swallow for the Jews listening to him. For them, historically, the temple was where God dwelt. It was God's presence there on earth. It was where God met with them. But Jesus in chapter 13 verse 35 had already told them God has left the building. So now allegiances need to be shifted. To be my disciple, you must follow me first. Before the temple or before your personal property. I'm guessing that large crowd was really starting to squirm at this point. Family? Personal property? Temple? Jesus continues to drive home his point. We're in in verse 31 now. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, He will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace with the enemy while they are still far away. So you cannot be my disciple without giving up everything you own, he says. In the context of the story, do you remember where Jesus was? On his way to Jerusalem. Okay, Walking towards Jerusalem. Crowds were gathering. I'm sure there was some hush whispers. There was talk of the Messiah. Is he the one? Is he the one we've been waiting for? The Messiah who's finally coming to overthrow Rome and he's going towards Jerusalem. 
Talk about Jesus driving home some points here. Okay? First, put me before family. Then, put me before your land or your allegiance to the temple. What could Jesus possibly say that would up the ante from there? Well, He says it. He speaks towards their hope of deliverance from the Romans. Now, looking at this little mini-parable from this angle is trusting that Jesus... His message had some cryptic messages behind it. It makes sense to me. This group of Jews had been oppressed by the Romans for a long, long time. And I'm sure that very regularly they would have reminded their children of the stories of the Exodus. They would have reminded their children to cry out for a deliverer. They would have cried out to God to send the promised Messiah. Send the one we read about in the Scriptures to free us from this oppression. Oh, what hope there would have been in that large crowd hearing whispers of a Messiah heading towards Jerusalem. Let's go! It's time! But Jesus says, you don't even have the slightest hint of what you're up against. Could your 10,000, if there was that many Jews, really even make a dent in the 20,000 of the Romans? Seek peace. Seek peace first. Jesus was saying discipleship of His had a cost. And in the most vivid way possible, He was telling the people listening that if you're going to follow Me, this was not a path toward worldly power and glory. But you must be ready for a loyalty which would sacrifice the dearest things in life and for suffering that would be like the agony of a man on a cross. Probably not what the crowds had expected to hear, was it? And then he says this thing in verse 33. He says, Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. All. Family. Personal property. Holding to the temple. Expectation of of a military victory from the Messiah. All of it. The Life Application Commentary says this, Jesus was not a salesman. He did not try and sell Christianity by telling people the benefits they would receive, the wonderful experiences they would have, and the reasons they should follow Him. Instead, He told them the costs, the hardships, and the difficulties that they would experience, and He encouraged them to carefully evaluate the costs before they followed Him. I love this. In verse 33, the Greek word renounce paints the picture of bidding farewell, of waving goodbye, which fits really well in this this narrative as Jesus is walking towards Jerusalem. Jesus is painting that picture of, hey, to be a true disciple of mine, you must be willing to wave goodbye to whatever you've known thus far. And now I'm headed to get crucified. So you must count the cost as to what you're waving goodbye to. Jesus finishes this teaching to the crowds with another pointed statement that would have made a lot of sense to his listeners. Verse 34 and 35. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Anyone who has ears to hear should listen and understand. 
Israel was supposed to be the salt of the earth. The people through whom God's world was kept wholesome and made tasty. But if Israel lost her particular ability and flavor, what was left? This final warning kind of speaks to the cryptic sayings about the tower and the battle and brings back the all-or-nothing challenge. The all-or-nothing cost of discipleship. There's quite a bit more that we could dive into in this text. But ultimately, anything we would look at is going to point us back to the same questions Jesus was laying before those listening to Him on that day. It's the so what of the message for them and for us. And I think we need to ask ourselves a few questions. First, are we willing to say goodbye to everything and anything God calls us to say goodbye to in order to put Jesus first? He may not call us to do that, but are we willing? Notice that I'm not asking, what's one thing you're willing to give up? Because that then gives us the ability to say, okay, well, we can hold on to other things. Jesus isn't saying that. He's saying you've got to be willing to drop it all for the sake of Christ. Now, if you're not willing, maybe you're still one of the crowds just following Maybe you've yet to cross the line in in which you'd move from interested onlooker to all-in disciple. There's a difference about knowing about Jesus, following at a distance and actually being a disciple. Are you willing to pledge your allegiance to Jesus? And if you're not, Jesus is pretty clear in here. Verse 26, verse 27, verse 33. If you're not willing, you cannot be my disciple. If you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. So you cannot be my disciple if you're not willing to renounce all. As terrifying as that may be, find hope in what one author writes. If a man is daunted by the high demands of Christ... Let him remember that he is not left alone to fulfill them. He who called him to this steep road will walk with him every step of the way and will be with him to meet him at the end. Our overarching goal is being disciples, making disciples of Jesus Christ. What does it require? Perhaps it requires a lot more than we may have initially thought. Let's count the cost. And let's pray.